The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and uh, I am the senior pastor here, and it's uh, great to be together us to come and uh, be able to open God's Word. And we are uh, picking up where we left off right uh, before Easter. So before Easter Sunday last week, um, we were in the book of Romans. And we're moving right along. And uh, we had come to the end of Romans 9. And so we're going to pick up in uh, verse 30 of Romans 9. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we're going to project the passage in just a moment, and there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can turn there. But from a few weeks ago, you remember, at the end of Romans 8, uh, Paul declared a beautiful uh, word to us, right? A beautiful word that, that those who are in Christ, who are trusting in him, who know that our sins have been forgiven, that we are perfectly secure, that there is nothing in this world or the world to come that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Romans 8 ends. And then Paul takes up that question in Romans 9 from a couple weeks ago, but what about Israel? What about Israel then? If God's promises are so sure, if, if they're so secure, what about Israel? Because they receive God's promises, but clearly many within Israel have rejected Christ and have not clung to him. Has God's promises failed? And of course, Paul answered that question in Romans 9. No, no, his promises haven't failed. His promises continue, right? Not all Israel is true Israel. Well, well, the topic of Israel continues in Romans. Um, he's continuing with that at the end of chapter 9 and here again in chapter 10. He continues to look at Israel because Israel, we're seeing, we see in this passage, stumbles and they fall. And their stumbling and their falling serve as a warning to us so that we wouldn't stumble in the same way. So let's go ahead and read Romans 9, beginning in verse 30, and we're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 10. So um, just stick with us, okay? All right, Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness, righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, 
in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you, a jealous, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask now that you would be with us. God, plant our feet firmly in your truth. Show us your path and lead us along it. Take us by the hand and by your spirit, open our eyes so that we would walk with you and know you. So we ask that you would be present amongst us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Vince Lombardi uh, was one of the greatest uh, football coaches in the history of the NFL, the longtime football coach for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, he was the original uh, coaching goat. Okay, he's, he's one of the greatest. And, and Vince Lombardi once said this. He said, the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. The harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. I have to tell you, when I read that, I love that quote. And I thought, you know what? I bet a lot of people at CTK would really like that quote as well. And the reason why I thought a lot of people here would like this quote is because you guys like to work hard. <laughs> Because this actually speaks to our sensibilities, to our desires, to our likes, to our strengths, right? Because many of us, most of us, know the satisfaction of a hard day of work. To look back on all that we've finished and have this sense of accomplishment, right? As you care for a patient, as you help a client, how through your sweat and labor the yard looks great. How at the end of the day the children are fed and happy and bathed and sleeping. <laughs> we can look back over our day and we feel satisfaction, right? We know that there's weariness, we know there's strain and struggle, but, but there's satisfaction in our labor, in our toil, in working hard. The harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. This fits in so many areas of life, doesn't it? The soccer pitch, the basketball court, the boardroom, 
If you've worked hard, when struggle arises, when difficulty comes, you're not going to surrender. Instead, you'll keep working hard. You'll press through the struggle. You'll press through the difficulty. It's a great quote. It speaks to many aspects of life. And though it speaks to a variety of areas of life, there's danger with this quote. There's danger with this quote because in trusting in our hard work, when we take that trust and we apply that principle to our relationship with God, it leads to problem. You see, work ethic, hard work, effort, if that's what we are trusting in, if that's how we determine our relationship with God, how we are with God, if it's determined by how we are doing, then it's going to lead to problems. You see, if we determine our relationship with God based on what we've done or our effort or our hard work, it won't lead to life. In fact, Paul tells us that's exactly what Israel was doing. Right? They pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, but instead of finding satisfaction, they found death. You see, Israel took the Vince Lombardi approach to their relationship with God. But in reality, what it ended up being like was Devil's Snare in Harry Potter. <laughs> so Devil's Snare is this fictional vine that shows up in Harry Potter, in the Harry Potter world. It doesn't really exist. I know that's a shocker, but it, it's not. It's, it's fictional. But, but it's this vine that if anything or anyone touches this vine, it starts to wrap itself around the thing. And it gets tighter and tighter and more constrained. And, and as someone starts to work and to fight and to struggle and to try to resist it and try to break free, it just keeps constricting all the more. It just keeps getting tighter and tighter. And so Harry and Hermione and Ron, they find themselves in this place where the vines are starting to constrict. And so they wrestle and they fight and they work hard to free themselves, but it only gets tighter. You see, the more that you work to free yourself from the constraints of the vine, the more it tightens, and all that work will lead to death. And y'all, that's what pursuing righteousness through our own works is like. It will only lead to death. It will constrain us and become tighter and tighter. And that's what Israel was doing. We see it in verses 31 and 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You see, there it is. That's the Vince Lombardi approach, right? They are working hard to find righteousness in their works. But their works led to death. Their work and our work is like devil's snare. It just keeps tightening and tightening. Now listen, Israel, they did work hard, right? Paul said they were zealous for God in verse 2, that they wanted a righteousness based on the law, verse 5, but, but they couldn't achieve it. They kept falling short. And why? Because though they were zealous, they were ignorant. Though they wanted a righteousness, they sought it on their own, though they had God's word, they didn't understand it. And to press this home, Paul quotes Deuteronomy three times. Did you see that? There's two times I want to focus on right now, these rhetorical questions. Paul says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? 
Now, Paul, in quoting the Old Testament, quoting Deuteronomy here, and asking these rhetorical questions, he's, he's leading us to see the problem with our righteousness by our own works. Because who can ascend into heaven? And he goes on, says, to bring Jesus down. Right? So he's invoking the incarnation. Who among us can go? Who among us can, by our efforts, by our work, ascend into heaven and bring Jesus down? What's the obvious answer? No one. Right? Okay, so if we can't ascend into heaven, maybe we can descend into the abyss. We can go down and we can raise Jesus up. Right? We can bring him from the dead. But none of us can do that either. No, you see, the point that Paul is making is that no man, no woman, can cause the incarnation or the resurrection. In other words, no man, no woman, can bring about the means of salvation. Right? I mean, those are the bookends of Jesus' earthly ministry, isn't it? The incarnation and the resurrection. And none of us have anything to do with that. It is not by our works or our efforts that we bring about the means of salvation. He's showing us that salvation isn't dependent upon us. As the New Testament theologian Tom Schreiner put it, salvation doesn't concentrate on human capacities, but on what God has done in Christ. You see, Paul is showing us that our effort isn't sufficient. That what we must do to find life and salvation isn't work harder, but it's surrender. That's the amazing thing about the the devil's snare, this fictional vine. That as they fought and as they tried to work to free themselves, it became tighter. But as soon as they surrendered, as soon as they relaxed, as soon as they stopped working to free themselves, it released them. And they had life. John Calvin, the great theologian, put it this way. The first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. See, that's why Paul is quoting Deuteronomy. He's trying to show us that none of us can ascend into heaven and none of us can descend into the abyss. None of us have enough works to bring about the salvation we are in need of. Our works will only lead to death. And he quotes Deuteronomy a third time. In verse 8, he says, The word is near, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And what is this word? Well, he goes on, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. This is the heart of the gospel. When it comes to our salvation, Paul is telling us what we need is not our works. What we need is God's work. What we need is God's work. And that's what Paul's been building towards in chapter 9 and the first eight verses of chapter 10. He's been setting us up. We want to try and find our salvation in our own efforts, but that's futile. But don't despair. Don't despair because salvation is available, but it's through the work of Christ and Christ alone. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, I'm not going to belabor resurrection uh, too much since we spent a whole Sunday on it just last week. But here again, do you see, here again, 
we see the significance of resurrection to our lives. Right? I mean, we can believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. We can believe that he died on the cross. We can even say with our mouths that he is the very son of God. But if he is not resurrected, if we don't believe that he is bodily, physically resurrected, then everything falls apart. Right? It's a house of cards. And that's the most important one. And if we take it out, then our salvation is nothing. We have no life. But if we believe, believe with our hearts that Christ was risen from the dead, we have salvation. So how do you know if you believe? I mean, what does belief look like? You know, oftentimes when the Bible talks about belief, it's not talking about purely cognitive assent, right? Like, I affirm this thing. Yes, it's historical. It's true. But belief in the Bible is, is often speaking more than just, about more than just our, our mental capacity. It's, it's speaking about our heart and our soul with our whole being. So how do you know if you truly believe? Well, I think that's where the first half of that verse comes in. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that, that Christ is the Lord. Because if you really mean that, Jesus is Lord. And that's not just some throwaway phrase for you. That, that reality, Jesus is Lord, will affect every aspect of your life. Because Jesus is Lord means that we are renouncing our works and our authority and our sovereignty over our lives. If Jesus is Lord, then that means we are not. Now, when... When pastors and theologians talk about the lordship of Christ and this phrase, Jesus is Lord, um, oftentimes we'll make a note to say how this is in uh, opposition to Caesar as Lord. So in the Roman world, that was a common thing that would be said, that, that Caesar is Lord. That's what people would say, that he rules, he reigns, right? He is the Lord over this place. But then the Christians showed up, and they started saying, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. And so it was in complete opposition to that declaration about Caesar. And that is absolutely true. Historically, that is absolutely true. But, but Jesus' Lord doesn't just renounce Caesar's lordship. It renounces ours as well. And this is really important in our day. This is very re relevant for today because our lives in this day and age, we are told regularly that you are Lord of your life. No, we don't use that language because, you know, we don't like lords in America, <laughs> right? Uh, we, we don't like that kind of monarchy type language. No, we say things more like you can say and you can act and you can believe and do and define your life in any way that you desire. That's what we say. Really, that's just another way of saying you're the Lord over it. You get to dictate your terms, that you have autonomy. But friends, our attempts at autonomy, our effort, our lordship will simply continue to constrict us and it will become tighter and tighter and tighter and we will die. It will only lead to death. You see, when we say Christ is Lord, 
we are saying, I am not. To confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord is to say that he's not just Lord out there, but he is Lord in here over my life. And that our lives are to be lived in surrender to him and his lordship. That is life and salvation. When we surrender to him, the constricting vines of our work are released and we find life. So do you want to know if you truly believe? You have to ask, is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord over my life? And not do I just say that with my mouth and believe it with my heart, but do my, does my actions, do my words, do my, do my thoughts, do, do everything that I say and do point to the fact that Christ is Lord? That he rules over my life, not me over my life. You see, friends, confessing with our mouth and believing with our heart, that is trusting God's work of salvation. That is where salvation comes. Not your own works, but Christ's work. And that is the message that God sends us with. We see it in verses 14 through 17. How then will they come to how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Romans 9, you remember we talked about God's election right? His sovereign choosing of his people and, and how he is the one who, who determines salvation. He's the one who saves, right? That this is what God does. But we see here how God, through his sovereign determination, through his goodwill, through the way in which he has oriented salvation to come, it is, he uses his people to proclaim that salvation, so though it is God who works and moves and it's God who elects and chooses, he actually uses his people to say that message, to proclaim it. And as we do so, we know some won't believe. Verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel, but some will. But you know what? That's not up to us. I have to tell you, that is extremely freeing. I am so thankful that, um, that I'm reformed. Because I couldn't bear the guilt of not being. Because if it comes down to me and my ability to convince someone and to get them to understand the gospel, y'all, I'm not smart enough and I'm not articulate enough and I don't have enough answers to enough questions. But it's not up to me. And it's not up to you. Y'all, that is extremely freeing. That is extremely freeing because it frees us to be able to speak the truth of the gospel and the message of grace and of salvation and not having to feel like I have to have every answer. What if I don't? You know what? You won't. 
You won't. I was having a text conversation this morning with someone, and they are throwing out questions about the problem of evil and about morality and darkness and light and all these sorts of things. And I'm like, I, I can't answer them all. But I don't have to. That is not what we're called to do. We are not called to be the ones who are going to change people's hearts. We are called to be the ones who proclaim the message that God changes hearts. Our job as those who know this message isn't to determine who will or who won't be saved. Right? Who will or won't respond positively. Like we're not supposed to look at people and go, man, he is so close. He's ready for the gospel. So I'll share it with this guy. Or this person, there ain't no way. So I'll just, I won't waste my time. It's not our responsibility to try and discern that. And thanks be to God, it's not because we would get it wrong. Right? No, that's not our job. Our job, our responsibility is simply to preach the good news. That God's salvation through Christ has come. Now, don't let that word preach throw you off there. Paul's not saying that all of y'all need to, like, quit your job, go off to seminary for three to four years, learn Greek and Hebrew, then forget it three or four years later. Um, uh, Study the New Testament, the Old Testament, homiletics, you know, pastoral care, all those sorts of things. Then go through ordination exams and then stand in front of people every Sunday and proclaim the gospel. That's not what Paul's saying when he says preach. Okay, you can take a deep sigh, um, a sigh of relief, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about preach in the way in which we often think about it as the pastor, as what I'm doing even right now. No, he's talking about in the sense of telling or heralding. And that's a call not just for the pastor, that's a call for all God's people to herald, to cry out, to tell that salvation has come. And we tell to all people, any and all who will listen, Look at verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there isn't a salvation for the Jewish people and one for everybody else. There isn't a salvation by works and another by grace. There is one Lord One faith, one salvation. Through one name we are saved. The name of Christ. And that is the message that goes into all the earth. Right? That's why Paul quotes Psalm 19 at the end of our passage. He says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That is the message. That is the message that we take into the earth. And the earth includes our neighborhoods. And our places of work, and our classrooms, and our homes, and our families. That is the message we proclaim. So who in your life, who do you know needs to hear the good news? I'm sure we all have people in our minds. It could be a coworker or a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a person in our family. We need to ask the Lord, provide opportunities. Give us chances. Help us to tell the grace of our Lord Jesus. Let us ask God to make us not only believers of the good news, but speakers of the good news. 
Because, friends, that's the message that not only we need, that not only I need, but that is the message that the world needs. That salvation isn't by works or by effort, but it's by surrender. The harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. Friends, what we need to do is surrender. To stop seeking and working and laboring to try to earn our salvation. Instead, to surrender to the gospel and the good news. That those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. Saved through God's work. And Paul tells us that those who surrender to this message, they will never be put to shame. And so let us surrender to the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed this to us. That you have shown us the good news of the gospel. That is by Christ and Christ alone that salvation comes. And so we pray that you would help us to put aside our works, to put aside our efforts at finding a righteousness of our own and instead to trust in the righteousness of Christ. For it's his work on our behalf that we need. And so, Father, help us to surrender to your grace, to your mercy, to your good news. We pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, amen.